G'day everyone, Matt Ellis with you for another edition of the Cricket Library podcast and a very special treat for us today, an Australian-born Englishman. Steve Wall could be out, yes, first ball, Rahul gets two, change of pace, he chipped it straight to mid-off and all of a sudden England back in the hunt, in fact they're on top. They are, a change of pace has done it and from... uh, Feeling desolation at one stage. England now right on top again. Two quick wickets. Good slower ball to Steve Steve Waugh completely. Adam Hollyoak is a story you do not want to miss. He's ridden the highs and the lows of life. He has plenty of wisdom to share about how he's dealt with the setbacks and celebrated the achievements along the way. We even get to hear a little story about Chris Rock and Viv Richards. It's time to sit back, relax, and enjoy the Adam Hollyoak story. A very warm welcome to the Cricket Library podcast. Adam Hollyoak, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, we love to start uh, with all of our guests. We, we're pretty much a group of cricket nuffies that listen to this podcast, and uh, we love to know the origins of people's love for the game, and you, you've done a lot of uh, a lot of things in your life, and you're not just defined by your cricket. But can you give us a little bit of an insight into growing up when you first realised you loved cricket? Um, well, okay. Firstly, I guess I probably to give you an idea. My dad was a a uh, young, uh, he played for uh, the Victorian Country Eleven back in the day. So, uh, but he did also play for the Melbourne Demons in the AFL. So, uh, oh, wow. so he was quite sporty. Um, and at this stage, from like from ages zero till uh, um, well, we were kind of travelling a lot before we. My my dad settled in England for six years. Um, we were travelling, so we were. A lot of times living in caravans and, um, you know, traveling around Europe and, and there lots of different places. I, so I don't have, like, you know, some guy, I'm probably guessing you've got on there that have memories of playing in the backyard. Um, I, I didn't have a backyard really. So yeah. we were just different. So it was always my dad, my earliest memories of my dad throwing balls to me and, you know, we're just, we're just playing games of cricket. Just, wherever we could play it so um quite just pretty wholesome kind of memories from i didn't play my first ever game of cricket until i was 12. Wow. so because uh, we were traveling so much but i was like i just always just played in the backyard with my dad or wherever we could play so and i know my my brother was the same because obviously he was with us so um yeah it was, it was kind of a, a unique less formal uh, entry into the game as most most kids, I think, just due to the nature of our sort of nomadic childhood. Yeah, and do you think that nomadic lifestyle helped shape your personality? It's amazing to bring that up because I've literally been thinking that very thing. I've kind of been doing a little bit of a journey into myself as in like trying to understand myself a little bit better. And I'm actually presently in... Uh, London over here following the Ashes round and doing some other work and stuff and I'm just literally going from hotel to hotel from friend's house to friend's house to, um, and I'm just so comfortable with it so 
very comfortable sleeping in different beds every night and just not really having a home base. And I, and I was thinking about my childhood. I was thinking, yeah, I think that's probably what made me be my most comfortable whilst moving around. And, um, you know, and, and that was one area of cricket that I never, you know, you hear some guys that they hate living out of a suitcase yeah. or, you know, yeah, that was just one area which I was totally comfortable with. And I guess I put that down to my childhood. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, getting getting into professional cricket, uh, you represent England at under nineteen level. Uh, how did it feel for you, uh, born in Australia? D- did you think of yourself as an Aussie growing up, or because you were moving around and whatever? You what? What was your? I guess what? How did you consider yourself uh, when when you? given that England cap? Yeah, that's a really good question. I um, I remember a distinct moment because you're right. I grew up, you know, from ages zero to 12. I grew up, up predominantly in Australia and around Australian kids and with my, my parents who are naturalised Australians. So um, I kind of, I, I always knew the name to, you know, the, the, the Australian anthem. I, I knew the word, sorry, to the Australian anthem and I knew the Australian history because I'd studied that at school. So I guess I felt pretty Australian, but without ever feeling that real affinity with Australia. And, and I, this is the way, I, you know, my whole life I've been very defensive about this topic because I'd always been accused of being a traitor, this guy who was born in Australia, raised in Australia, and then only went to play for England because he wasn't good enough to play for Australia. That's, that's the narrative that, that's out there. Yeah. Um, and I'd always just try to defend that. And then one day I went, why am I defending this? Like, it's not my fault. <laughs> I was a kid. You know? I, and I and I actually got on the front foot and I said, you know what? And I thought about it. It's like, I feel cheated. That, well, not cheated. That's probably a bit harsh. But I, I don't, I would have loved to feel that affinity with one country and be able to go out there before a game and sing their national anthem and sing it with, and just feel so patriotic. I see guys crying during the national anthems and, you know, just that feeling. You can see the proud. I, I never had that because I was, I'd never felt that playing for England and I never would have felt that playing for Australia either. Mm. I never, I don't have that affinity with one country because I just traveled so much as a kid and I'd learned to play cricket in England. I, my, my parents and my upbringing was Australian in a lot of the ways, but, I don't feel if I'd been picked for Australia or England, I never would have had that burning um, affinity with that one country. And I don't think that should be my fault, really. That was just the nature of my upbringing. And it wasn't like I was trying to diddle the system and go and try and play. That was just the way it was. So I used to get very defensive about it. Now I'm like, you know what? It is what it is. And why should I be defending this? It was just. I wish I had that. I wish I'd felt that connection with one country, but I just don't. So it doesn't mean I didn't try my hardest, though. And on a cricket side of things, is it is it true you started out as a predominantly a fast bowler and then you had some stress fractures um, and gave you some time to sort of concentrate on, on your batting and you sort of uh, picked up that skill set as an all-rounder in that time where, where you were dealing with that injury? Uh, good research. That's very good research. I think because I was quite young that that happened. Um, I think I, 
I, I wasn't out and out fast bowler. And my my goal in life, my ambition was to be the fastest bowler in the world. And mm. probably at the age of you know being sixteen, I was on track to do that. I bowl used to bowl very quick. Um, we're not saying I was the fastest in the world at that age, but I was. You yeah. know, if I'd carried on progressing at the rate I was. I could have been, you know, one of these faster bowlers going around. Um, but I did get a stress fracture. And then back, you know, whilst these days they're um, handled well, I, I was on and off and I just carried on playing and uh, for a period of two years. But what a lot of people don't know is I actually smashed my ankle as well, which uh-huh. is more the problem because I came with a stress fracture. But because I've been out for so long, people thought that was the reason why I couldn't bowl as fast. It was actually, I, I shattered my left ankle in a water skiing accident. So, uh, um, a bow, a back water skiing accident, as in my water skiing was bad, <laughs> which caused the accident. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, um, and yeah, and I was never able to really slam my foot down again. And during that time I did learn to bat. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much spot on with your research. Oh, there you go. That's it's always if I'm calling myself the cricket library, I feel if my research isn't very good, then I probably need a new name. So I'm glad I'm glad, I'm glad that well, was accurate. Well, I'm, I'm impressed that you that that is a very good research. And um, stepping up into international cricket, you you, you get into the one day international side um, initially. Uh, you debut against Pakistan. And then, then you get to play against Australia. And I'm sorry to just backtrack a little bit here. I just want to read you something that Stephen Moore said um, about you playing in a game against them in 97, uh, one of the early one-day internationals in your career, your player of the series in this series. And, and Steve Moore says, if there's one thing that gets an Australian side fired up more than a pommy walking to the wicket, it's an ex-Aussie in pommy colours walking to the wicket. But, <laughs> but on this yeah. occasion, his desire, application and determination proved too much for our attack. So that uh, for context, that was a game. Um, actually, your parents flew over to that game. And I think in the, in the newspaper uh, the following day, y- you said something like you're out there batting and you hit a boundary. Then you look up on the big screen and you saw your mum and dad. What that's do you remember right. about that? Actually, well, I'll tell you what I do remember is that your research is outstanding because that's, um, I'd actually forgotten about that myself, but I, you brought that back into my memory. Um, yeah, they, I mean, that's, I mean, for you guys in, in Australia now, they're like, you've got the big screens and those things have been up at the MCG and the big ground for right? So back in those days, the screens, the portable ones, the temporary ones only started going up around that time. So it was quite a new thing to, have a big TV or a big screen at the at the grounds, and I remember batting and then looking up and seeing my mum and uh, I thought I recognised those people. I was like, "Holy shit, that's my mum and dad! They're here!" <laughs> so I didn't I didn't know they'd just flown over to come and watch. So I, I knew they were coming, but I didn't expect to see them on the screen while I was batting. Yeah, yeah, and um, is it true? Like, I get the feeling following from from afar, the England media love love to hype things up and you guys won this one day series there's a lot of a lot of talk around England winning the ashes as a player 
Is it hard not to get caught up in all of that? Do you, are you someone who would have read the papers, uh, stayed away from the papers? What, what what was your approach to dealing with the the hype in and around a big series like an Ashes series? So I started off. Um, that's a, a good question again. And I started off reading the newspapers, and then as every teenage kid or early twenty year old kid did. I started seeing some bad reports written about myself and I wasn't able to separate myself from it. So I get angry and how could they write that about me when they're just doing their job. And then, um, so then I went through the stage of not reading it because I thought it upsets me and it makes me angry. Um, and it's probably not a good thing to want to fight journalists. So <laughs> I, um, I, I then, um, I went through a period of trying to avoid, um, reading the, um, the, the media or anything like that or listening to it and then I got to the point where maybe and again I just evolved again and I was like hey you know people are entitled to their opinion and if people don't think I'm any good that's fine I've got to learn to live with that and I guess I matured again and and then I went to the point where I started reading it again so I went through a couple of different phases in my uh, in my life and, and to the point by the end of it I'd become so desensitized to it whenever I saw a negative article about me or anything like that, I'd cut it out and put it on my wall so a lot of people put that you go to people's houses and they've got um, the big headlines and the positive stuff up there I would I was the opposite I used to cut out the negative stuff put it up there and I found that desensitized me to anything that was written about me anyway. So, and to this day, even I've got a couple of neg- negative um, articles about me up on my wall. So it just um, it keeps me humble. As I have the tendency to get a little bit above myself. <laughs> so it keeps me. And, and then it also reminds me not to take myself too seriously. So yeah, um, that's my motive. That's my reason for for that. Yeah, and um, later in that one day series. Your brother Ben gets to make his debut. I think I think that game's at Lords, and he towels up the Aussies uh, as as an older brother uh, watching on and getting getting to see that firsthand and and see your your little brother play so well. Um, what what are your reflections on that? Well, that's, a, that's an, an interesting um, story actually because I mean obviously we grew up like I said, as I alluded to earlier we travelled around a lot so. We built up a very close bond because, you know, we, I had no one to play career with a lot of the time, so I had to play with him. I'm six years older than him, so mm. um, I, you know, as a 12-year-old, I'm playing career with a six-year-old, and that's probably the reason why he was so advanced at such a young age. But um, they came to me and they said, listen, we're going to pick him. Um, he's only 19 or something at the time, or 18 or 19 or something like that. And um, I remember thinking, man, he's good, he's talented. But he's not ready for the Australians. The Australians are, you know, far and away the best side in the world at the time. And um, and whilst he's, you know, incredibly talented kid, I said, there's no way he's going to be able to, you know, deal with, you know, the you know, Warns and the Grads and the Gillespies of this world at that age. So um, when they picked him, I said, look, you know, I don't think he's ready, but you know, you do what you're going to do. He's going to be ready soon. So, but they picked him, and then I remember that day. He came out to bat at three, I think. And um, I, I stayed at the back of the changing room. I didn't want to see it because in my mind, I and I also, you know, I, I never got nervous. I, I got, did get nervous because I got nervous, but I didn't get as nervous as I did when I watched him play. Mm. So um, 
stayed at the back of the changing room because I was kind of worried about what was going to happen out there. And um, and then the first boundary came and I, I was watching it on the tally from back inside. And then as more and more boundaries started happening, I sort of ventured out onto the balcony in a, like puffing my chest out as if I knew he was going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and, and it was just, it's just one of the most proudest and most, uh, and probably the most entertaining innings I've ever, I've ever seen. So, um, I mean, obviously I'm biased and it's, yeah. um, I was invested in it more than most, but it's still probably my favorite innings I've watched in my life. So, um, yeah, amazing. Because it was 1997, and he he hit 60-odd off 40-something balls in an era where 60 off 90 was a good clip. So yeah. it, it was kind of ahead of its time. Yeah, it was. Um, and, I don't, and it wasn't him necessarily trying to be, you know, overly attacking or whatever. He was just a, an, such an incredible hitter of a cricket ball, just a timer of a cricket ball, and... And completely unfazed by, you know, imagine, you know, Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne as a as a nineteen year old. You, he'd be growing up watching these guys decimate best batting lineups in the world, all around the world. So, um, to just do what he did, I remember he just, he just pumped McGrath that day, and then just decided he was going to get into Warney as well. So, um, pretty remarkable, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and. Late, later that summer, uh, two brothers make their test debut. Uh, describe describe the emotion ar- around that for you, your family. Uh, what what did it what did it mean to you? What does it still mean to you? That's a really interesting because I don't think I think because of the way the previous year had gone for me and my brother, it just didn't. Seem as like a big deal at the time. I mean, it, it did. I know I'm not going to say it didn't seem like nothing, but yeah. it just seemed evident, inevitable that it was going to happen. I mean, I'd captain England A out to Australia, um, and we won undefeated out there. And my brother played in England under 19, and been successful there. He'd been coming to the Surrey side. We'd both been successful playing for Surrey. Um, and then obviously the series, um, you know, I got man of the series in that series against Australia, and then my brother got man of the match in that game. And mm. we, it was just, for us, it was a kind of when are we going to play, not right if. It was like we just knew it was a matter of time before we played. And all that's what it was about. That's the, the sort of momentum we were on. So when it actually happened, it didn't seem like that big a deal. I mean, it just seemed inevitable that that was going to happen. Um, I just and whilst of course still a big moment, I don't think I actually realised the gravity of the, of the occasion. Probably until about four or five years ago, mm. when I was reading an article and it was um, it was I think Sam and Tom Curran played a game together or something like that, and they yep. were saying they're the first brothers to play a game for England since the Holyoke boys, and then before that, and and we were the only brothers that have made their debut together that century or something. So I was like, wow, it's actually <laughs> quite a big deal. But at the time, it just didn't – I mean, it did, of course. You test that baby, of course it did. But yeah. I don't think I actually realised how big a deal it was. Yeah. And, and what do you remember about your introduction to test cricket from the Australians? I, I assume they would have been nice and friendly to you and, and giving you a nice warm welcome uh, out in the middle? As they do. 
Um, I wouldn't expect anything else. It's like I, I grew up in Australia. I'm of the same belief. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I came out to bat there and um, I knew, I mean, especially off the back of the one-day series, I knew that there was a target on my head. And um, I came out to bat and as I, was, I thought they might let me take guard first. <laughs> but um, I was like, so we had Ian Healy we were keeping Mark Taylor first slip Mark War second slip Steve War third slip Michael Slater gully they're all there and they're all pretty fired up he's got a couple of wickets and I'd come to the crease with a fired up Glenn McGrath so um, I'm trying to get my composure and trying to stay present and just ignore all these guys I'd grown up watching as my heroes and just try and focus on the ball that was just, I was just trying to focus me and the ball, me and the ball. And then they say, hand clapping came from behind. Come on then, boys, let's have this guy out. Here he is, making his test debut, all his family, watching on TV, back in Australia. <laughs> wishing he was playing for Australia. His <laughs> Uncle Rex, Auntie Jan, and then they started reeling off the names of all my family. So I was like, holy shit, how do they know them? Like, And then... So I'm meant to be focusing on the ball, and as Glenn McGrath's running in, I'm just like, "How do they know Uncle Rex?" <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, oh, so, some very good banter. That's... And it was Warnie who mentioned Auntie Jan. And I was like, in my mind, I was like, "Has Warnie slept with my Auntie Jan?" It was, <laughs> so, uh, so, oh, some pretty, some pretty good mind. Because the object of sledging, everyone thinks it's abuse, but it's to pretty much take the batsmen out of their game and take them out from being present and take you out from just sitting there and watching the ball. I've got things spinning around in my head instead of watching the ball. So, yeah, some pretty good stuff for boys there. I was impressed with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very, very impressive. And um, you two of the West Indies, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, a game over there. A test match that's abandoned on day one. Are, yeah. Are, are you disappointed that you didn't get to bat? I don't know. No, I'm actually not. <laughs> uh, I, watched, I was watching. There was about an hour that I think we played of that game, and, and um, that wicket was like nothing else I've ever seen. So I've played on danger. We all played on danger wickets. You know what I mean? There's nothing yeah. special about danger wickets. We've all been there and played on them, but. This one was so fast, and they had Ambrose Walsh, Kenny Benjamin, and I think Nixon McLean, who are all like you know very handy fast bowlers. I think it was Nixon um, McLean's test debut, actually. Yeah, is anyway, that right? Yeah, yeah. So that, uh, their attack was like that, and then we had Angus Fraser, who's not very fast. Andy Caddick, who's maybe a little bit quick. Myself, who's Seventy miles, you know, one hundred and twenty kilometers an hour, and and short, and still Tufnell. So we weren't exactly putting the fear into people like Brian Lara or um, <laughs> Jimmy Adams. So um, yeah, but this wicket was it was terrifying. So length ball, there was, was like can you imagine a corrugated roof would be the best way I could describe oh, it. Oh wow! Uh, so it would. Hit if it hit the upslope, it flew your head. If it hit the downslope, it went straight along the floor, and and fast it was doing it. So it wasn't doing it slowly; it was doing it quickly. So um, it was abandoned after an hour. So 
Um, you know, there's no way you could play out. Someone would have been maimed, you know. So not a uh, yeah, not a good not a good wicket. And, and the physio would have been racking up the uh, racking up the step count, running out into the middle uh, every time someone got hit. Yeah, yeah, he was a uh, very present. On TV, I think he he was a household name after that. The <laughs> amount of time he had on TV, yeah, it was um, it was yeah, remarkable scenes really. Yeah, yeah, and um, I want to talk a little bit about captaincy. You, you, you take on the the Surrey captaincy at age twenty three. Uh, you have the opportunity to captain England after uh, five games. Um, uh, one, three of those is a player of the series, series for you. Uh, talk about, I, I'd, I'd be interested to know your approach to captaincy and, and how it sort of changed over time through your experience from being the 23-year-old doing it for the first time uh, to how it evolved and, and what it was like when you finished. Um, yeah. Um, well. Firstly, when I got offered the captaincy of Surrey at the age of 23, I thought there was someone standing behind me because <laughs> I'd, um, I'd never, when they asked me to do it, I'd never been captain of any sports team. I played a lot of sport growing up, but I'd always been a rebellious, outspoken, um, naughty, I guess, um, person. So when they came to me and asked me to do it, I literally thought it was either I was on candid camera or it was April Fool's or there was someone that they were talking to that was standing behind me. It was just, I was not captain to material. Um, mm. I'm very fiery and um, passionate. Yeah. Um, probably the point of being so passionate that I didn't have my emotions under control. Um, you know, I was often fighting, um, you know, on a Friday, Saturday night. I was, um, you know, I was, I was not, not captain to material. But for whatever reason, um, when I get given the responsibilities, and, th- and they must have seen something in me, I guess. I think I've always been, a, I guess, an influential personality. Um, so I think they thought if they could mould me into a more productive, then I could be influential in for, in for a better way. So uh, it ended up being that way. And, and I, I think probably the greatest thing I did as a captain um, was acknowledged that I didn't know everything about it and that I needed the help of the senior players to, um, to help me with it because I was still learning the game myself. Mm. And uh, and then it kind of worked. With, you know, I'm an enthusiastic person and I guess my enthusiasm coupled with, I guess, in that, I'm not necessarily the most humble person most of the time, but I guess my humbleness in that particular instance is saying, look, I don't know everything and I need your help. Mm. Um, it kind of worked well, and and then I, I, you know, in answer to the question of did my captaincy change? Yes, well, I became way more confident with the job because um, we had success quite early on, and um, then it just—I mean, I think captaincy is just something that you generally get better at with experience, anyway. So, um, I actually matured into a, for like I met a sort of intimated before as very uh, emotional person mm. I kind of um, um, matured into someone who had quite a lot of control over their emotions in the end so that that changed quite a lot so I think captaincy changed that for me 
Yeah, yeah, and and something like nine trophies at Surrey. Um, what what do you what what are the common threads um, that lead to success? I guess what what are the what what are the things that you look back on and go, yeah, these are the things that helped us to be uh, the powerhouse that we were. Uh, there's a very, very, very easy answer to that, and that is I had the best team. Mm. Um, I had the best batsmen, the best bowlers, the best fielders. Um, so the starting point was, you know, very, you know, I was fortunate. It, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, think that I took a bunch of deadbeats and, and turned them into this crack outfit that just um, was, Invincible, like that's not the case. Um, we had, you know, we had the most talented playing roster and the best players. And that said, there's been a lot of very talented teams that haven't reached their potential. So I think having those players, I, I'm under no illusions that I wouldn't be able to take a normal group of people and achieve that. I know that it's off the back of their brilliance and it was an elite group of individuals that just happen to be there all at the same time so um number one thing and i always pay respect is to the the players that was the most important thing Mm. yeah and um, must have been a real pleasure to play with such a talented group yeah well there was one stage where we had 13 international players on our squad 13 so you only get 11 (laughs) so we had two guys who played either sitting on the sides or playing in the second. So um, the hardest job of a captain in that side often, other than controlling all the egos, mm. was managing the expectations of people. You know, just because he plays for England doesn't guarantee you're going to get picked for Surrey. Yeah. So don't forget we were allowed over players as well. So we had two players from international players. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, um, and just mo- moving on to more personal uh part of your story the the, the tragedy uh, when you lose your brother in a car accident uh, can you can you just reflect on the impact that had at the time and the impact that 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 still has on you as a human being and um, what you've learned about life from having to deal with such a hard thing um, yeah sure I mean especially the impact it had on me is profound. Um, I always say that if we, if you take a toy off of your, you know, we were talking before about your kids, you know, yeah. um, if I take if you take a toy off your two year old or three, you know, when they when they're two or three, you take a toy off them, they go to pieces, and you know, if you say you're not getting this for a day, you misbehave, they, you know, they literally throw themselves down on the floor and they're mm. crying because that's the thing that's ever happened to them. Yeah. Then after a period of time, they realize, okay, well, I'll get it back tomorrow. So then the next time you take the toy off them, they, they learn to deal with it. So they become more resilient every time they have to go through hardship. Mm. So, and that becomes, as we go through life, we just, we hit harder and harder things. You know, we get older and people die, we have mm. illness, financial troubles, um, love, all these things, you know, we lose along the way. So um, at the age of, you know, my brother dying at 24 and I was still quite young, 
the only thing that I'd happened, the, probably the worst thing that had happened to me before that was, other than my best friend also dying in a car crash, was I'd sort of duck in a game of cricket or something like that. So I was mm. had left such a blessed life that um, that hit me so hard. It was just in comparison to everything else that had happened to me. So, um, yeah, it was traumatic. It was, it was, I wasn't prepared for it. I wasn't. And I, I and I and I guess I've been on that journey ever since, and like how to deal with it, how to um, not let it destroy me, and and now probably to the point, probably in the last only last four or five years, I've just come to terms with it, and it's now there's there's I can there's never any a total positive out of a tragedy like that, but I guess the one thing now is I I do feel that anything that gets thrown at me is I'm going to be able to deal with so. Mm. Um, I always say we can do whatever you want you can do whatever you want to me I'm not scared of anything leave my kids alone don't hurt my kids and anything else I'll deal with mm. I'm going to take my leg you know I've had to deal with stuff in life which has um, prepared me for and got me into this fortunate position where I'm not scared of anything so I'm not scared of dying myself I'm not scared of financial I've suffered financial loss I've mm. lost in love so even starting to lose my hair. How about that? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm not fearful of loss. I just don't know anything is my kids now. I just want, you know, God willing that, that, you know, they remain healthy during my lifetime and I don't have to deal with that. that and, you know, it's, it's given me resilience beyond what I could ever have thought I'd be able to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's, a, that's a really... Uh, a really hard way to to be shaped, I guess, and it happens in, in in everyone's life at different stages. We have things like that that happen, and um, yeah, it's it, yeah, it's 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 never never easy at all. Um, well, what do you what 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 do you remember most about your brother? What makes you smile? What 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 sort of things um, about Ben did you love the most? Well, he was just an incredibly relaxed guy. He was someone that we could just chill out. He's, you know, we could sit there and we'd compete and anything. Or we could sit there in silence and just be comfortable with one another. Um, he's a very laid back. I'm pretty laid back myself. So I feel like there's no two brothers in the history of the world ever been able to chill the way he and I could chill. So mm. um, that's... That's something. And my, I'm probably, probably my abiding memory is the competitiveness that we have with one another, whether we're playing table tennis or um, a game of pool or a game of darts, whatever. We were always competing. So probably one thing that I was talking to my mum about this the other day and I reminded her, we were both sponsored by Nike and we got given the, um, a bunch of apparel that was, wasn't probably Nike's top-selling line. I would have thought some very boring pieces. But there was one piece, and we got given, you know, a, you know, an absolute bounty of them. So I got given you know, 40 T-shirts. He got given 40 T-shirts, something like that. And um, But there was one, which was a standout T-shirt, and I claimed it got given to me. He claimed <laughs> it got given to him. For years, like, he, we would, we wouldn't, we just stole it off one another. So he would say, bag i'd take it and i'd put it in my bag and and we never once confronted each other about it, it was just, uh, this game that we had going on that uh, i'd steal it off him he'd steal it off me and 
this went on for ages and eventually, um, well, when he died, I remember we had to go and like clear his stuff up and what have you. And I went there and the little bastards, he had it, he had the, he had the ticket, didn't he? So like, <laughs> he won the game. He, he won the game. So that's, that's what I remember there about that. He's a funny guy. Oh, yeah. Good, good, good memories. And, um, life after cricket. So much of your life is cricket, um, but you, I, I look at your bio and what haven't you done? Like <laughs> MMA. Well, I haven't done. Well, once, one thing you haven't done, WWE. Did you ever think of WWE as a career path? I did actually get asked by the WWE if I was interested, but it was after my MMA career and I was like, man, I've got to grow up at some stage. So I can't. Oh. I'm trying to get through a real job. But I thought, you know, the WWE might be a step too far. So, um, oh, I thought the W, you, you in the WWE would have been bringing the fans back <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm not so sure they're interested in fat Polynesians. Or the Rock, you know. Yeah, if you were in the WWE, just sorry, this is totally off, off track. Um, if you were in the WWE, do you see yourself being a baby face or a heel? Because oh, oh. you played a pretty good heel role in Australia, you, you you got they booed the house down sometimes when you were around, didn't they? When you came came to play in Australia, do, do you reckon you'd embrace that if you were in the WWE? I think so. I'd have to be. I think it would depend. If it was in Australia, then I'd, I'd definitely. Uh, I actually used to join in. I think I had one day. I think we had the world record crowd at um, the MCG was like ninety five thousand people at the time. And I think I had the whole crowd sing Hollyoaks a wanker. So um, <laughs> it was, I joined in, you know, I was like, well, these, these you know, it's quite a catchy little song. So, um, yeah, I'd probably, yeah, I'd probably, I'd have to be the heel, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. And, and what, are you, what are you up to now? What's your, what, what's, what's life looking like for you now? Where do you, where, where do you see things headed? What's on your, what's on your roadmap, I guess? I guess um, I think now I'm probably at the happiest I've been. I mean, I think when something happens to you, like what happened with my brother, you know, you go through a number of things. And I just, I probably realized that, you know, I'm never going to be as happy as I was, you know, before that. And that's just, you know, I'm not going to be able to achieve that level of happiness, but I can still be the happiest that I can be moving forward. So mm. probably this is now the happiest I've been. You know, I've been, you know, I've had some financial. Um, I made some fight. I got caught out in the global financial crash, and a few other things go wrong. And um, so, I think now I've got a really nice balance. I've got a couple of boys. My two sons are both elite rugby players, yep. and I'm enjoying time training them. You know, trying to get them into the NRL, uh, um, and enjoying the challenge of that. I do a bit of coaching with Queensland Bulls, um, and then I've just opened the microbrewery in Mermaid Beach. So, oh, um, very is, nice. Yeah, I thought that might get your attention. So, <laughs> uh, many time I mention beer here and this, uh, to an Australian male, then it generally like gets their attention. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so um, yeah, we've opened a, a microbrewery up down there in Mermaid Beach on the Gold Coast, and um, and that's taking up a bit of my time as well. So between you know training 
the Queensland Bulls batsmen. I've trained some fighters out of Matrix Boxing Gym on the Gold Coast and then the microbrewery. Um, I'm pretty busy. And then with my two boys, training them as well. So it's a nice mix of things that keeps me you know, I'm 100% ADHD. So yeah. I need a number of things to keep me focused and on path. So yeah, I feel like I'm actually achieving that at the moment. Oh, that's that's really good to hear. And, and you over for the whole Ashes tour? Are you going to be there um, for the duration? I'm here till the end of August, so I'm here beyond the end of the Ashes. So it's um, what a series it's shaping up to be. So um, I'm looking forward to that, you know. And um, and then I'm doing some other stuff over here as well, catching up with my old club, Surrey, which again tonight they've got a game against Middlesex. So going down to watch that and just enjoying catching up with all my old friends that I made over here during my time here. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. And, and speaking of catching up with old friends, um, our signature question to guess is around the idea of a dream net session. Um, if, if, if you could have a dream net session, you can invite anyone you want. Uh, who is Adam Hollyoak inviting to the nets? How many in there? You're, you're allowed three. One. You're allowed three. So your top three picks. Don't have to be oh. cricketers. They, they can be from any walk of oh. life. Um, you can oh. ask so whoever. So I don't have to play cricket? No. <laughs> no. Um, well, okay, I'm going to bring Viv along because he's probably my favourite cricketer and also one of my favourite people. So um, Viv's there. Um, Did you get Mike Tyson a lot? Oh yes. <laughs> I, so I just think whatever happens, whatever happens there, he's always um, makes things interesting. It's never going to be boring while he's around. You, you bring your ear so, guards uh, for your helmet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. make sure I've got the visor on. That's why I definitely want those ears protected. <laughs> um, Oh, another one. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, maybe, I mean, I I, 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 I I fancy myself as an intellectual these days. I try and sound intelligent, even though I'm quite clearly not. Um, so I'm a bit of a Jordan Peterson fan. So maybe just to... And what a crowd as well. Viv, Mike Tyson and Jordan Peterson. Like, how? How <laughs> did you not have... That would be a very eclectic conversation I'd, I'd really enjoy that actually yeah i'm imagining jordan peterson psychoanalyzing mike tyson i think it'd be brilliant yeah that'd be really good and and viv did you did you have much to do with viv uh throughout your career what 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 are your memories of of viv well i did actually he's become quite a close friend of mine so um my my memories of viv are Regardless of who's the greatest cricketing, but I mean, I mean, people are going to say Bradman's the greatest. But for me, Viv is that person. He's the Muhammad Ali. I mean, was Muhammad mm. Ali the greatest late boxer of all time? I don't know, but he was the greatest person. And I feel Viv falls into that category. So I think you'd have to be hard pressed to say that anyone was better than Don Bradman. But yeah. as a human being, I just love everything Viv stood for, the way he played the game. Um, I said, I'm, I had posies. I was one of those weird children that didn't have pictures of of um, bikini-clad women on their on their walls, 
I had posters of Viv on the wall. So, um, and I'm just fortunate that he's become a close friend of mine. So, um, am I, I've got a very good Viv Richard story. Um, yeah. So, caught up with him in, in, um, in Sydney. It was, what's the name of it? There's a bar. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. It's the establishment in, in Sydney. It's a very nice bar. And I was sitting on a sofa and, and Viv was just a man of respect. The man of respect, his manners, integrity, he's impeccable. So I'm sitting there, and uh, and I was with, with another friend of mine who's uh, you know a, a good boxer. My best friend is a uh, very good fighter, and so we're sitting there. And I look to my left, and Chris Rock has rolled into the establishment. So he sits down, and Chris and Viv acknowledge each other. I, I don't think Chris knew who Viv was, or maybe that he did. <laughs> um, they they nodded to each other and. It might have just been a you know acknowledgement of cultures. Um, I'm not sure. Anyway, so I was like, "Holy hell, that's Chris Rock!" So we're sitting there, and the next minute, Viv starts absolutely going off, like talking to him like Chris Rock's his son. He's like, "Yeah, man, get your feet down off it." So Chris Rock had taken his shoe off and had his foot <laughs> under his up uh, on the sofa under his. So pulled his like, foot up underneath his, like he was almost sitting on his foot yeah and Viv started full-on confronting him like he was his son or something like that and <laughs> Chris Rock I couldn't believe it I thought and Chris Rock had a couple of security there yeah and um I was like wow this is this is it it's gonna be on yeah <laughs> but Chris Rock just pulled his foot down put, put his foot down on the floor and that was it and we're like okay we just carry on it was like Viv just told Chris what's happening <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's outstanding. That, that is a that is a very good note for us to finish on, Adam. Uh, thank you, thank you so much for being so open and so honest with us. And um, thanks, thanks for taking us on the on the journey. I, I learnt lots about you, and I'm sure our listeners will will really get a lot out of of, of hearing your story. And really appreciate you taking the time to do so. No worries. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. A massive thanks to Adam Hollyoak for sharing his story with us on the Cricket Library podcast today. A very full life he is living and a a great perspective on things and really thankful for him sharing that perspective with us here on the Cricket Library podcast today. If you enjoyed that chat, hit the subscribe button. Share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it and make sure you stay up to date with all the happenings here at the library at thecricketlibrary.com. There will be some announcements coming about future guests, so that's where you will see them first. Well, it's time for me to bid you all farewell. This has been Matt Ellis for the Cricket Library podcast. Bye for now.